Good morning. Thank you for being here. Saturday mornings are early, and I'm always encouraged to see so many sweet faces here ready to learn and to to open up God's Word. So I'm excited to be here and to share with you this morning what God's been teaching me and showing me and proving to me about His character and His faithfulness. And so I'm excited to share all that He has shared with me. We're going to take our notebooks as we do each Saturday morning to the back, and we're going to look at the Wellspring Purpose. And our disciplines. Well, the Wellspring purpose, as we know, is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church. God has placed it upon the elders at Grace Bible Church to fully equip us and to encourage us as the women of the body here. We're well cared for by our elders. And this is cause to give thanks to God for this great gift that we've been given. And we're being equipped and encouraged to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God. That's what Lori just helped us to do this morning. That's discipline one. We've learned in God's Word that our hearts are sick, desperately sick. As believers, God has done a great surgery on our hearts. Let's take the analogy of the heart transplant surgery. The heart is sick. It's desperately sick. There's no hope that this person will live if there's no new heart given soon. Well, someone has to die in order for this heart to be available, to be donated. The surgeon removes the diseased heart and replaces it with a new heart. Everything went well as surgery, but this patient is under the doctor's watchful eye, and to be more, he will be more susceptible to infection for the rest of his life. This patient must be diligent to take the prescribed prescription and to be watchful and careful of germs and to watch for symptoms. And so it is with you and I. We are all born with a dead heart, right? That's what the word says. Our hearts are dead. We're spiritually dead. This heart did not love God and one it was even unaware of its need for a new heart. Jesus died to save those who would belong to him. God, who is called the great physician, does surgery. He takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a new heart. This is our greatest need and God's greatest gift. It's called the great exchange. But daily, we are in danger. We are at danger from within. The heart is so prone to wander. This heart is new but it has old desires. We, too, must be diligent to watch out for symptoms. We must be diligent to bring this new heart to help and to hope every day throughout our days. That's why Discipline One is worth fighting for. Our spiritual well-being is fully dependent on it. It's at stake. Our families are in danger. Those nearest to us are in danger. The body of Christ is under attack. That is why you and I must do everything we can, as far as it depends upon us, everything possible to keep our hearts near to the word of God throughout the day. We may need to ask help from others to help us to learn to manage our time so that this is the highest priority of our days, of our very lives. Why is this so important? It goes on in Discipline 2. So that we live out the gospel. This is the result of our time spent with Jesus and his word. The gospel transform us. How we live, how we think, how we interact with one another, how we speak, how we serve, how we respond. Everything about us is changed. So that in our homes or at work or the school or the grocery store, wherever we are on the freeway, wherever we go, others can see. And then D3, we strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. So you just see how it's like a waterfall flowing from one to the next to the next. God's mission is to save people, to redeem sinners. God's desire is to make himself known. This is God's mission, and he has chosen us. He's chosen us, sisters, to be a part of that, to be a part of his mission. <clears throat> he's, he's chosen us as imperfect people who continue to sin to save others to share his mission the gospel is the power 
to salvation. The gospel is powerful to save sinners. When the gospel makes its home in a heart, faith is birthed. The result is that a person now abandons self-rule, self-righteousness, and trusts in God's righteousness and surrenders to Jesus' rule. This is mankind's greatest need, and everyone needs to hear the gospel to be saved. Others need to see a life transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, lived out day after day. The gospel must penetrate our own hearts first, which overflows to our homes and to those in the body of Christ and to those who still need to hear. It is very important that we keep our hearts near to the word. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to know you more. We long for our affections to grow for you because you are worthy. You are holy and you are righteous. You are altogether good. We were in darkness, slaves to our own sin, to our own selfish desires, our sinful nature. And you loved us. You sent your son Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live and to die, to redeem sinners to yourself. Those who had no thought of you, who had no desire for you, didn't even know their need for you. But you loved us and you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that we might now be raised to new life and to live to glorify you. We are no longer our, our own. We have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. You have redeemed us to give glory to your name, to boast in our Savior. Lord, I pray this morning that we would be brought low before your word, that we might be those who are humble of heart, we'd have a broken and contrite heart, and Lord, that we would tremble at your word, that we might see how you have changed us and give glory to your name, And, Lord, that we might be willing to see sin remaining and that we might come to your throne of grace to help us in time of need. And, Lord, we are always in desperate need. Lord, we thank you for just allowing us to be here this morning around your word, under your word, with sweet sisters in Christ, desiring to know you more and to live more fully for you, more holy for you, So, Lord, would you do your work in us? Thank you for all you have done and all that you will continue to do in us and through us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look at Proverbs 14 and 1, and we're going to be all over Proverbs this morning. So if you want to kind of open there, um, that would be awesome. Are you guys hearing me okay in the back? Yeah? Well, our homes are a place of protection. Actually, let's start with our verse, Proverbs 14, 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Homes are a place of protection, fellowship, rest, instruction, and hospitality. Homes are designed to be a place of provision and nurture, share joys and burdens. Home is where we begin to learn to interact with others. To instruct, to be instructed, and to live out all that God has called us to be as women in our homes. A wise woman blesses those whom God has placed in her household. She will order her household with diligence, intentionally loving and doing good and not harm to those that God has placed there. She takes great pains to profit those in her home. The foolish woman, on the other hand, tears down her home, even though she may do it She may be given to contentiousness, ungratefulness, and bitterness, using her words as demolition tools and demolishing her home. The foolish woman will destroy even those things most precious to her. At times, got by God's grace, I'm acting like a wise woman. But I will confess there are many times that I'm acting much like a foolish woman because what's in my heart at any given moment is what's going to come out. 
There really is no middle ground here. There's no just coasting. I'm either building up or I'm tearing down with my words. As you and I are diligent to renew our minds with scripture, rather than being more familiar with the voice of the world, knowing God's word, being a doer of his word, we can be master builders rather than demolition experts. You know, you can picture that big old black ball on a chain on that, um, what would that be called? I don't know what that's called. I have that written down. A crane. And just hitting the side of a building and watching it just come down. The walls begin to just come down, crash. It might be that we're more like little termites eating away at the very foundation, slowly eating away. No one sees, but the damage is being done. Left unchecked, these small bugs will completely destroy a home. Well, through our attitudes, our words, and our behavior, we have the power to bless, and we have the power to tear down those who live with us. Proverbs 12.18 says there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It examines all kinds of situations in life and evaluates, is this wise or is this foolish? Proverbs is very clear that a fool's only hope is for the one true God the all-wise God, to save one, to make him wise. Proverbs 2.6 begins, For the Lord gives wisdom. And when God gives wisdom to a fool, that one is saved. His affections are new. His desires are new. His thinking and living are transformed. The foolish one is given a new heart and a new identity. Only God can change the hearts of men. And we know from 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to fools, to those who are perishing. But it's the power of God for salvation to those who will believe. God has become for believers wisdom from God. So we know that wisdom comes from God. Proverbs also tells us that we participate in pursuing, growing, and obtaining wisdom. So I'm going to go and um, if you'll turn to Proverbs 2 with me, I'm going to just read the first six verses. It calls us to a strenuous search for wisdom. So listen as I read. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you will call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The chapter goes on to tell the value of wisdom. Can you and I be wise women and yet be foolish? We can, can't we? We've learned at Wellspring. We continue to remind each other continually of our um, mixed condition that we live in now. The three Ps that they've shared before at Wellspring have been really helpful to me. The power of sin has been broken. The penalty has been paid by Christ on the cross, but the presence of sin still remains. We have sin's residue in our hearts. In a state of darkness, separated from God, we had no understanding of, of God or of our sin. We were in an unmixed condition. We could only ever sin. Then God saved us. <clears throat> In this state of sanctification, we'll battle sin in our hearts, though the penalty has been paid. Do you ever feel as though you're becoming more and more sinful as you grow closer and closer to the Lord? In actuality, he's purifying his beloved. It's that as the nearer we get to the holiness of God, we see how very sinful are. We become very sensitive to our sin, more sensitive to our sin. So we're in that um, mixed condition, saved but still fighting sin. And one day, we're going to be in in another sort of unmixed 
condition. We will be with Jesus, and we will be forever without sin ever. So no more mixed condition. We'll be with him for eternity. So when we see fool throughout scripture, we need to think first. This is one whose only hope is in God himself to give him a new heart. Or this is one who knows God but is acting foolishly at this moment. Proverbs isn't speaking to us as followers in Christ about our salvation status. We are no longer fools because God the Father has saved us and adopted us as his children, but to help us evaluate that remaining residue of foolishness still remaining in our hearts. When you and I see Proverbs, see ourselves in Proverbs, bringing our hearts before the Lord, laying it bare before him, oh, I thought that was mine, and we see wisdom in our lives, This is cause for us to praise God for evidence of his grace. And if we see um, a need, maybe where, where we are being foolish, we look to God for his grace and to the gospel to help us to abandon that foolishness. So whether we're being wise or foolish, we look to God always. We are thanking him for his grace and mercy or we're asking him for his grace in the power of the gospel to help us to give up our foolish ways. Thanking him for his grace and recognizing our need for his grace and then seeking him for it. A proverb is usually a short saying which gives insight on life and behavior, but it cannot be interpreted as prophecy, promise, or absolute doctrine. So here's an example. Proverbs 16:7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. That's true, generally speaking. However, we know that Jesus' ways were always pleasing to God the Father, but his enemies were not at peace with him. That doesn't mean the proverb was wrong. It just means that it's not a promise. And it's not a doctrine. It's a general insight into life. So I might say I fear the Lord, but if I look at Proverbs and see that my life is better described as foolish, I need to examine myself. Am I being deceived? Am I deceiving myself, thinking I fear the Lord, But in reality, I'm acting foolishly. Am I blind to an area of my life where I don't fear the Lord? Be encouraged, ladies. It is by God's mercy toward us when our sin is revealed. It's a blessing from him. As I dug into God's word and studied this verse, I was reminded as I was typing of past foolishness. I was encouraged that my faithful father so many years ago was kind to reveal my foolish ways in my home and help me to grow in grace. I remembered thoughts and words and actions of my own doing that had he left me there would be a great destruction today. I'm so thankful for his care of us. He's also shown me areas where I still continue in foolishness. Our desire is to know Christ more, to be more like him, right? So we don't fear God's penetrating light. As a refiner refines gold, It must be heated seven times over. And each time, more and more of the impurities and the dross is is removed. And what is left behind is a more pure gold. That's That's what God is doing in our lives. Doesn't that remind us of our need to be in the Word daily? Because it's here that God uses His Word to do that, to bring that junk to the top and to purify us. He changes us through his word. We can thank God for his refining in our lives. He is purifying those he loves for his glory. So again, looking at Proverbs 14.1, all of us have some sort of home. We have a physical house, a home. We may have family that live with us there. Maybe we have husband or children, or maybe you're married with no children, or your children are grown and now you're enjoying grandchildren. Maybe you're a young woman living with her parents or with roommates. Maybe you're in the season of life where you're living alone. Seasons change for all of us. God has knit us together in our body at Grace Bible, and it's a wonderful blessing that he's given to us so many different stages in our lives. Another gift he's given is his word and applies to all of us in every season of life. It is robust for all of us. Where do we always begin? Where is the seat of my emotions, my thoughts, my will, and my deeds, right? It's the heart. We keep the Wellspring verse before us. 
that we are to, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. When we come back to Wellspring in January, Jacob Hantler will be here teaching on that verse and helping us to see again how very clearly our need to guard our hearts. And it's a great lesson, very picturesque to me, and um, just helps me to see that clear. You and I can be builders, or we can be demolition experts. We can be wise women, fully dependent on God and his word. We can build up figuratively the prosperity of our household. Or we can be foolish women, trusting in our own understanding, being stubborn or obstinate. Follow with me on the outline, and we're looking at Roman numeral number one. Proverbs describes wise women as gracious, prudent, excellent, one who fears the Lord. The wise is often seen in two important ways. The first one is the blank in your outline. The way we listen. The wise woman is teachable. There's an eagerness to receive instruction and learning, as well as rebuke and discipline. Does this describe us? A wise woman is in full-on pursuit to grow in her understanding and to grow in her grasp of the gospel. This woman, this woman continues to saturate, saturate herself in the gospel truths and realities and strives to know them more and more and how they impact life. She seeks to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's in Romans 3, 23 and 20 through 26. A wise woman has nothing to dread because she's drawn upon the cross of Christ. The deeper our understanding of our sin and the holiness of God, the sweeter his mercy on the cross becomes. The more bitter our sin becomes to us, the sweeter our love for Jesus grows. I heard a pastor once who was confronted by a church member pointing out sin. The pastor's humble response was, You are so right. And you see only a portion of it. That's a man with a humble response who understands his sinfulness and God's amazing grace. So we're going to continue on in the outline as I read from the book of Proverbs and the descriptions of a wise woman. It should be listed there for you. A wise woman heeds instruction and doesn't neglect it. She loves the one who reproves her. Are we particular about who we receive reproof from? Is it easier to take from some and not others? I want my heart to always be ready to take every reproof and then take it before the Lord as from him. We do not see our blind spots. You know, we're driving down the road and we look in the rearview mirror and we look to the mirror here. And if we don't do that quick little over our shoulder, we're going to be one with the car next to us, right? We don't see it. doesn't mean that he's not there. We just can't see him. That's our blind spots. We need each other. We need each other to help point out those blind spots. God uses others in our lives to help us. We need to be ready to receive this as his mercy. It benefits our relationship with the Lord, and it's for our good. It's from him. A wise woman receives commands, and she listens to life-giving reproof. A wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. A wise woman, when she is taught, becomes wiser still. A wise woman also listens to wisdom. We see that the teachable spirit begins with a spirit of humility that recognizes we know so little of God's word and apply even less than what we do know. It's a spirit that recognizes that we have so much sin remaining in us. We want to speak in a way that's consistent with his work in me and that encourages his work in another. He's working to produce in us a harvest consistent with the character of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A teachable spirit is descriptive of a woman who knows she needs to change and is eager to do that. It might be even inviting others to speak into our lives, as we did in our homework this week. We're being wise women, eager to be taught when we go to another. 
asking, what do you see in my life that maybe you think I don't see? Do you see blind spots that I'm not seeing? Would you be my helper in that? The second blank on your outline is the wise woman speaks wisely. Proverbs 16.23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Jesus made the same point in Luke 6.45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. If I'm holding a cup of coffee and I'm bumped on the arm, what spills out? Coffee, right? It's not the bumping that causes coffee to spill out. It's whatever's in the cup is going to be on the floor. It's going to be spilled out. So it is with my heart. Challenges will come every day. You and I will sin, and we will be sinned against. Whatever is in my heart is going to be revealed. We need to spend ourselves to be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prayer that Sarah Shelbourne shared at our last meeting and sharing the disciplines with us has been helpful to pray and to keep my heart engaged with the Lord before I open his word. One of the paragraphs reads, I desire my heart and mine to be full of you because of what your re- word reveals about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn near to you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word and gazed upon your son and the gospel. Look at all that scripture says about our words, starting in Proverbs 10:19 on your outline. A wise woman restrains her lips. A wise woman isn't rash, but rather tongue brings healing. A wise woman is a fountain of life. It turns aside the snares of death. A wise woman's lips protect. A wise woman makes knowledge acceptable, and her lips spread knowledge. All of these verses show that to be wise, one must guard her heart well, so that what comes forth from her mouth is thoughtful, it's helpful, it's protective, it's instructive, and winsome, even when giving a reproof. Life doesn't always come in a beautiful package, does it? Relationships are not always easy. Perhaps you're having a difficult conversation with someone in your home or family and you feel your heart hardening. You know that feeling when um, your thoughts and emotions are brewing inside and you're beginning more and more angry, maybe you're bitter. You already have a response ready to their words, not really listening to them, not not willing to hear them. We are sinners living with sinners. The question is, how will I respond? Will I build up or will I tear down? Will I respond in light of the gospel? There are riches in our storehouse for this very moment. God has given us everything we need to respond rightly and to speak wisely. All of God's riches that we need to move beyond our own hurt and anger and to function now as an instrument of the Lord, he has already given us. We can summarize one who is wise by how we listen and how we speak. So the platform has been set for our words, but Proverbs speaks to many other ways we can tear down our homes. The next blank, for example, um, is um, the warning against the sexually immoral woman. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but we, but you have all the references in your outline. We wanted to leave those there for you to look over um, if it's an area that you need to understand better. Proverbs speaks severe warnings against the sexually immoral woman, severe warnings. But we do need to understand what sexual immorality is, don't we? What is it? What is sexual immorality? It might seem like a funny question to ask, and yet in today's world, there are a lot of people who would define sexual immorality as something other people do. But biblically, God's call is for us to be pure. 
That means that we view others as brothers and sisters, um, seeking to speak, to act, to dress, even think in a way that does them good. That helps them see Christ in us and spurs them on to love God and to be pure. And the only relationship that is to go beyond that is if we're married. The relationship with one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It's pure, and it's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually proactive or immodest in our dress, or as Jesus said, even thinking sinfully, sexually, about another person, is sexual immorality. But like any sin, sexual immorality is birthed in the heart, right? Even if we aren't behaving in a way that is sexually immoral, we need to check our hearts. So let's ask ourselves the question, where are my affections? Do I desire what I shouldn't? Am I content with what, with what God has given me or not given me at this time? Those kind of questions can help us identify if there are any roots of sexual immorality in our hearts that needed to be weeded out. The next blank and the next warning we have from Proverbs is um, in idleness. That's your next blank. Idleness tears down our homes. So here are some questions we might ask ourselves about that. Whom do I serve? Am I a hectic sluggard, busy, 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 and never accomplishing? Do I neglect priorities that God has given me for what I would rather do today? Laziness or idleness always tears down. It's characteristic of a foolish woman and rooted in self-love. It's the ability to take myself off the hook. It's a willingness to permit ourselves not to do the things we should do. It's believing that good things are going to come my way without me having to do much work to get them. It's opting for what is comfortable for ourselves rather than what's best for others. Laziness is always self-focused and self-excusing. Laziness is undisciplined and unmotivated. It permits us to avoid what we should be engaged, avoid when we should be engaged. It expects more from others than we require from ourselves. Laziness demands good things without my willingness to invest in them. What a great sermon Smeg gave us two weeks ago. Don't confuse laziness with waiting on God. It was exceptional. It was both convicting and encouraging, right, for those who heard it. It was a packed full lesson on laziness, teaching on laziness. So if you haven't heard it, you must listen. It's great. All of these warnings are very serious. And you have the references in your note. Again, we want to leave it there. So take some time to look intently at those warnings on your own. With Christmas season upon us, though, we're going to focus on contentiousness today so that we're ready to battle that sin, especially as maybe we have more time with family or those in our household And we're going to be ready to use our words to build up rather than tear down. We want to be intentional about our words. We want to prepare our hearts now, begin there, to be filled with God's word, so that the overflow will be honoring to the Lord. We'll still make it our highest priority to spend time with the Lord each day throughout the next few weeks, especially during Christmas. This is his priority for my every day. His priority. But this will hopefully get our minds thinking and alert to the deceptiveness of this sin and we begin to root out and tear down, uh, rooting out those things that tear down. So the next blank on your outline is a contentious woman. (coughs) The definition of contentiousness is to be given to angry debates, quarrelsome, strife, discord. So we're going to look at the foolish woman now in Proverbs. Proverbs 19.13, and these are all out there for you. The contentions of a wife are constant dripping. Proverbs 21.9 and 19, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. The word vexing is to provoke, to stir up, irritate, distress, debate in anger. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and um, a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasp oil with his right hand. 
One of the most sobering examples of contentiousness in the word is seen in the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings for 40 years. Exodus 17, I'm going to be Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Riphidim, and there was not water for the people to drink. They have a real need. They need water. But the problem we're going to see is their response to their need. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you ever find yourself responding like that? Grumbling and complaining? It makes up the American language, doesn't it? Ever find yourself complaining about the temperature? Too hot? Too cold? Yeah, nothing comes to us unchanged by God, right? From his very hand. Nothing man can do can change the weather. But we complain about it. We can set our minds to complaining at the mound of laundry we have to do, or we can thank God that we have clothes to wash and children and family to take care of, that we are fully clothed. We can complain about how quickly our homes are in need of cleaning again. I just cleaned an hour and a half ago. Or we can thank God for the home he's provided us with. We don't deserve any of it. And we can thank him for those he's placed in it and for the health of our bodies to do the work in our homes. Grumbling and complaining are sure signs of contention, and we tear down their homes and our relationships when our heart is filled with discontent. Thankfulness cultivated in our hearts kills contentiousness. Let me say that again. Thankfulness cultivated in our hearts kills contentiousness. Thinking on all that God has done for us as believers what we truly deserve and what he has given us and all that he gives us to enjoy still in the way of earthly blessings is a sure way to battle that sin. God was gracious to his people then and he continues to be gracious to his people now. In spite of their sinful responses, he provided their need. He provided water. But the passage goes on to give the lesson God gave to them. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What can we learn from this? We can learn that genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Contentiousness breeds more sin, grumbling and fear and then accusations. Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. God's view of contentiousness is really that we're actually testing him. We're not believing that he's actually among us, or that he cares for us, or that he's at work for our good. We're not trusting God's goodness to us when we complain. It will do us good to look again at the cross. God provided our greatest need in salvation, and he will provide for us in every other way. The same pattern showed up throughout all of Israel's 40 years of wandering to the very near end. They had 40 years of God's faithfulness to them, and yet they continued to be contentious. I have to ask, when has God been unfaithful to you? When has God not been faithful to you? Never. Proverbs reveals that contention is stirred up by anger. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And by arrogance, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord, he will be enriched. For lack of, I'm sorry, and also by gossip, for lack of wood the fire goes out, and when there is no whispering, quarrels cease. Contentiousness also creates defensiveness. Contentions are like the bars of a citadel. When a city was under attack, the people would bar themselves in. So it was a, putting up a bars around the city to protect themselves. This type of defensive action in our homes, though, brings division. There is contention, and one party hides away. You won't get to me. I'm safe here. I'm going to protect myself back here. I'm not vulnerable to attack back here. And we can be on either side of this. 
We can be causing one to wrongfully hide away, or we may be the ones tempted to guard ourselves. This is not a picture of what God wants in our homes, and he is faithful to help us. He is our hope in that. Who among us has not been hurt by words of another? Who hasn't regretted something that we ourselves have said? Who hasn't wanted to talk seriously to a family member, but there just doesn't seem to be time? Who among us can say, my words are always appropriate to the situation, and they are always kindly spoken? Well, Jesus is the word, and he's the only hope for our words. I want to understand in a greater way how radically the gospel can change the way I understand and solve communication, don't you? Paul Tripp writes that speaking redemptively is all about choosing our words carefully. It's not just about the words we say, but also the words we've chosen not to say. We refuse to let our talk be driven by passion and personal desire, but communication instead with God, communicating instead with God's purpose in view. It is exercising the faith needed to be part of what is God, God is doing in that moment. Contentiousness. Contentiousness is also repeated warning in the home. Proverbs 17.1, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. We have seen serious warnings in scripture, and we can thank God for being a kind father who gives us warnings. It's our work to understand what these warnings mean and how we are to heed them. But we also have to remember our hope. Will you turn with me to 1 Peter 2.24? Maybe this is a verse you go to often. First Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. We might, it's, he died so that we might die to um, immorality, to idleness, contentiousness, and we might live to righteousness, thankfulness, gratefulness, contented, and we're healed by his wounds. We're made new. We're forgiven by him, by his great sacrifice. The gospel helps me move from a performance relationship with God to one based on the sinful life. I'm sorry. Let me start that again. The gospel helps me move from a performance relationship with God to one based on the sinless life and sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. It reminds me that from God's view, my relationship is not based on how good or bad, wise or foolish I have been, but upon the perfect goodness and death of Jesus and the resurrected Savior. That is good news, ladies. The gospel frees me to honestly face and acknowledge my sin. And if I don't see that sin, I don't see my need for him, I'll continue to trust in self-righteousness. The good news reminds me that God no longer counts that sin against me. This reality causes my affections to grow for Christ, doesn't it, in you? Amazing grace. Nothing else, like the gospel, fans the flames of devotion to one who gave himself for one so undeserving. Ladies, tearing down a home takes time, little by little, a little bit here, a little bit there, like the termites. We all have witnessed the devastation of a home ruined. It is heart-wrenching, it is hard to watch, it's ugly, and it's a sin against a holy God. Maybe it's unnoticed for a time. Words left unsaid or words said to tear down. Sin left unchecked and maybe swept under the rug or hidden in a closet. Everything looks okay, but like a fire smoldering, it will soon erupt into a huge fire and the home is demolished. It is completely destroyed. Oh, for God, oh, for grace from God to be builders of our home and not demolition experts. I cannot re- help but remember from our study two weeks ago the destruction caused by Jezebel and her daughter Athaliah. Both women failed to grasp the heart of God for the home and their role as women in it. Their words caused great destruction, even to the point of killing grandchildren, a grandmother killing her grandchildren. It's so important also to protect our, ho- ho- our 
time and prioritize our schedules? Are we careful to build up by taking care of our family's needs? Or do we so neglect those needs by lack of planning, of discipline, or desire? We can get so busy outside our home. Perhaps even doing good things, probably doing good things. It's another example of leapfrogging over our family. We don't want to put off those relationships in our homes and the responsibility that God has given us as his priorities. Are we reserving the best of our physical and emotional energy for our family and those he's placed in our home? If we're not taking time to talk with our husband, our children, our roommates, our parents, and to encourage them, to bless them, to serve them, to shepherd them, then there are some things in our schedule that must be evaluated. Or maybe we need to draw near to the Lord and seek his heart. Priorities in the will of God will never conflict. Communication is a really big deal in our... Can you guys hang in there with me just a little longer? I feel like I'm holding you all here. But we're, gonna see, we're actually going to try to get through the whole lesson, and then we'll break for our special time this morning. So, Communication is a really big deal in our relationships. We know we shouldn't go to bed angry, but it seems it will take long to solve this, um, this conflict. We know we need to clear up this morning's misunderstanding, but it won't leave us time to relax before we go to bed. You know that you're bitter, but there just doesn't seem to be time in your schedule to examine and confess it. You know that things are not right, but you will tell yourself you should wait for a better time or maybe it'll just blow over. You'll walk away from an argument and you know you should go back and ask for forgiveness, but you don't know what you're going to get into. Or you just want the other person to suffer a little longer to feel the pain that you have felt. Perhaps you have a relationship that's inflicted with difficulty because you failed to act to keep it what God intended it to be. Very few things in this world are corrected by inaction. Here's another way I found that Proverbs 18 is um, 21. We've had it early in our lesson, but here's a different way. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Some antonyms for contentiousness. Easygoing, friendly, gracious, pleasant, agreeable, cooperative, peaceable. We look at Genesis 2.18 and we find again that God gave man a helper fit for him. So we can ask ourselves, am I being a helper? With what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, to whom I'm saying it, and when I am saying it. The what. Have I given thought to my words? Are they edifying to the hearer and seasoned with grace, as Ephesians 4.29? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may be give, give grace to those who hear? And how? Is my attitude reflecting humility? Do I see my need for a Savior at this moment as I speak? What does my body language say, right? The rolling of the eyes, the folding of the arms... Proverbs 15:28 The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Whom I'm speaking to? Am I being a helper? Is this the person I'm speaking to that is involved in this situation? That I'm not going outside talking to friends or other family members about the situation. Am I going directly to the one involved? And when? When is the best time? Have I pondered my answer again? Sometimes when we ponder, we find our words were not needed at all. Or it may be that our husband or roommate needs some time to enjoy dinner and light conversation before we go to them with a difficult situation or conversation. Is it in my heart to build up or tear down? Proverbs 15:23 says, How delightful is a timely word. The example of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 does good to her husband and not harm. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's for every relationship. So we could ask, Is this good, and is it beneficial for those in my household? Will it bring harm? Is it wise? Does it promise understanding, promote understanding? Or is it more about getting this off my chest? Or just help me to feel better? Is my motive love for another, or love for myself? The wise woman who builds up her house will make a priority of reconciling relationships. Matthew 5.23 shows us that priority. 
Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come back and present your offering. We'll need to do this over and over again as often as we sin against another. We can go, we can even look forward to it and the peace that's brought, that's brought, that is restored as a result. If we do not go right away, it grows to a bigger matter, doesn't it? If we even suspect that our tone was sharp or was a stumbling block in any way or that your manner was exasperating, go and ask. And then if it's apparent that you've sinned, confess and seek forgiveness. And we don't want to just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is for when you bump somebody in the arm or step on their toe. We are to seek forgiveness. It's to be sought when we sin against one another. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, take out the log first from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This takes us back to the walls of the citadel. Going to one another humbly, having dealt first with our own hearts, is the only way for those bars to be unlocked, to bring restoration to those relationships. Jesus says we begin with our own sin, and then we go to our brother or sister. I can examine myself with joy, realizing because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, I do not have to live under the control of the sinful nature any longer. Repentance is the continual um, posture of the believer. So we ask, Have I preached the gospel to myself first? Am I more concerned about my own sin than with someone else's? Our sinfulness can be known not only in what we say and do, but also in how we respond to someone else's sin. And their sin does not excuse mine, right? We want to be wise women who do not assign motives. We cannot assume we know another's thoughts and motives, ever. The Word of God is the only one who says that. God knows the heart. We want to always think the best. Think the best, ladies. We want to be willing to extend grace because, that I, because I'm eager for restoration. Restoration to the godly character and restoration of relationships so that God is glorified and Christ is displayed in his people so that the church is strengthened. We see these disciplines over and over and over again. This is our desire, and by God's grace and through his strength, we have the ability to respond rightly. Praise be to him who gives everything we need for life and godliness. We have new abilities and strengths. We no longer are slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness. Now, as we go to one another, are we going humbly? Is my heart ready to have someone else put their eyes on my soul and help me see things more accurately, more biblically? Or, after dealing with the log in my own eye, has their speck disappeared? Many times that's the case. So often I find that after being with the Lord, aligning my heart with his, once again, there's really no issue at all except what was in my heart. God's word shines a light on my heart, and I see that it was the issue of not getting what I wanted at that moment. And so there was contention. Maybe I wanted to be esteemed or appreciated at the moment. Maybe I wanted quiet or the pleasure of conversation with a friend, not to be interrupted to discipline my children, and I responded angrily. Wise communication does not leave room for impulse speeching, speech, nor venting, nor careless words. No just wanting to tell what I think. And there's no preparing speeches or rehearsing it over and over and over again in my head, thinking through what I'd say if I had the chance. Thinking all that, on all that we have looked so far, we can look to the list on your outline and ask, what is true of me? Do my words build up or do they tear down? I frequently express gratitude for the benefits that I have received from God and others. Or, I frequently grumble about having what I don't want, or wanting what I don't have. I build up with words of praise, appreciation, and admiration. Or, I often hurt others with critical, belittling words. I'm quick to point out the failures of others. 
I am either quick to humble and seek forgiveness when I have wronged someone, or I tend to defend or justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong. I can either be faithful in praying for God's work in others, husband, children, friends, or parents, or I spend time talking to friends and counselors about the needs of the lives of those around me than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf. When I'm provoked, I generally respond with a gentle answer. Or do I generally am easily provoked and tend to respond with harsh words? Satan and the flesh want to control the tongue, and the results are devastating. Perhaps more damage is done in life and homes and churches than by the tongue than by any other means. It is sobering to realize that the tongue can be used to damage reputation and cause trouble when it ought to be used to praise God, to pray for others, to witness to others of Jesus Christ. The tongue is a little member of the body, as it says in James, but it is one member that must be yielded to God as a tool of God's righteousness. Wise women choose to be slow, slow to speak, not slow, (laughs) slow to speak, (laughs) and quick to listen. We will choose to think things over in light of God's word, praying about the situation, examining ourselves, repenting of my own sin, and then going to one another with a heart of gratefulness for all that God has done for us, with a heart of grace, with an eagerness to be reconciled to one another, and again to God. When we are wise with our words, we're placing our trust in God, confident of his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return, did he? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Fight this sin of contention by remembering first God's character. He can only ever be kind and good. Only ever. Always think the best. 1 Corinthians 13.7 Love hopes all things. Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. For Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among who I am foremost of all. In your time with the Lord, maybe ask him to show you what pleases him in your speech and what does not. We can then align our hearts with his and seek him for his grace want to cultivate a heart of thankfulness. So we seek to be wise women who build our homes. We must always keep God's grace in view as we build. The grace that brings salvation is the same grace that instructs us to deny ungodliness and live righteously. We look to the finished work on the cross to our new ability to do this. Proverbs shows us again how desperately we need Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. Are you and I creating in our homes through our words, our actions, and attitudes that makes my husband, my children, my roommates, my parents, my siblings want to be there with me? Make it your goal to make it hard to leave and easy to come back home. Take heart, sweet sisters. If this has been a convicting lesson, it's okay. We'll be wise women to face our sin, but we cannot stay there, can we? We look to Christ and the cross. We praise him for his love for us and providing redemption. Martin Luther has a great saying, Because you say, I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are. Or on the contrary, When you say I'm a sinner, you give me armor and a weapon against yourself. For Christ died for sinners. You do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. We can be women who speak redemptively. Christ has equipped us to speak to build up. The gospel is a call also to forsake living according to the cravings of the sinful nature that we might live for Christ. Remember what a great price with which we were bought. Let us pursue Christ diligently, that we might be wise women whose affections are for him, whose service is for him, and whose trust is in him, who is our Savior, 
and our King, that our homes might be built up for his glory. Let our homes, O Lord, be a place where others might see good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Let all praise be to him. This afternoon, uh, I think Sarah's going to email you a link to an article by Paul Tripp entitled Speaking Redemptively. It is a great article. It's kind of lengthy, but it's a great article on exactly this. Um, He does a great job of um, encouraging us that our words are always to build up, to be centered on the gospel. Um, There was one quick story that he had about his own sin as a pastor. He, um, there was a man in his congregation that he said he actually hated. He hated the way he looked, the way he dressed, the way he would tear down this pastor, Paul Tripp. And um, he was ready to go to him. His wife challenged him and said, I think by your words you are that you really hate this man. And he went away for three days and just went before the Lord. And the Lord began to reveal to Paul his own sin. And the re- what he saw in this man was exactly his own sin. And how that man then became a tool in Paul's life to refine him and to change him and to show him his sin. It's a great article, so I encourage you to print that off later and read through that. It's a great article. Let me pray. Do you want me to pray or do you want to come up and do, you want to come up and do that? Okay. Whatever.